It really depends on you, me, our families, and our civic organizations and our politicians to say, what is it I want out of my transportation, my cars? What is it I really want? And be open to change. It's not a foregone conclusion. If we don't make the investments in electric charging, if we don't make sure that low-income people benefit, we are not going to get there. Jonathan Rubin, economics professor at UMaine and director of the Margaret Chase Smith Center for Public Policy, talking about the challenge Maine faces in the transition from cars and trucks burning fossil fuels to electric vehicles. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Maine Question Podcast. Anybody who's had to fill up an oil tank for heat or put gas in the car knows all too well what a complicated, expensive challenge it is these days to deal with energy in our lives. Rubin focuses on those very issues. Energy, greenhouse gases, alternative fuel sources, and means of transportation. He's quite busy these days, as you might imagine. The war in Ukraine, pent-up demand due to the pandemic, and supply chain problems mean oil and gas prices have spiked. There are encouraging trends, however. Electric vehicle sales are on the rise. Renewable energy costs are coming down. Battery technology is making advances. Of course, hovering over all of these issues, good and bad, is the pressing need to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. Rubin has been part of a study that has examined all of these trends and has come up with a guide for states to find and implement the best ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. One of the key ways to do that Make the switch to cars and trucks that run on electricity, not oil and gas. Electric car adoption in Maine is rising, but still pretty minuscule, about 2% of current new car sales. As a rural state, there are big challenges to the effort to increase that number. The need to drive long distances, a lack of charging stations, and weather are just a few of the factors slowing down that transition. We spoke with Ruben about all of these topics and more. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Just so much to dig into on this whole topic and this story in particular. Let's talk first of all about the report that just came out that you were involved with. I believe it, you said it was more than two years in the making. What was the study for? Who commissioned it? And what was the main objective you guys were going for? Thank you, Ron. It's a, it's a real pleasure to talk about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and transportation. That's my, my favorite topic here. So thank you for this opportunity. So I was part of the uh, Transportation Research Board's study uh, called Reducing Greenhouse Gas Emissions, a Guide for State Departments of Transportation or State DOTs. And it's, it was a two-year effort, maybe more than a two-year effort. And what we were looking at is, can we get a ready-to-use guide, web-based, such that state DOTs around the country can just go to that website and then click through the parts and say, how do I start? Some states are way ahead like California, other states are, are not so far ahead. And so states are at different places and this is a guidebook trying to help states where they are. What were the key findings as to how states can reduce greenhouse gases, uh, particularly in the transportation sector? The first thing is, as I mentioned, states are all over the map. And so some states are way ahead and some states are behind. So the answer is it really partly depends on where you are. It's, it's hard to generalize to the nation as a whole. California is by all acknowledgements, the leader in the United States in terms of state actions. Uh, Maine is, is rapidly do, catching up. We're doing great now under the 
uh, leadership of Governor Mills, Efficiency Maine and Maine Department of Transportation. So there, there's a lot of progress in Maine, but we're still way behind where California is. Our neighboring Northeastern states, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, all making progress, but it's a different, different level of, uh, than California. And of course, there are some states for largely, I think, political reasons that aren't really making the same level of effort. And so with this guidebook, we are trying to say, okay, first thing to do is states have to take an honest appraisal of where they are. And once they understand where they are in this process, are they the beginning, the middle, or are they trying to execute the best possible plan? We're trying to meet them where, they're, where they are. With so much variability among the states, and they're all unique in their own way, but there's some commonalities, certainly, like you mentioned in the Northeast. How different is the menu of solutions because of that? The menu of solutions, what makes sense, partly depends on whether or not you're a rural state, an urban state, how good your mass transit system is. In a rural state like Maine, it's very challenging because we don't have big or urban cores and we don't have a well-established transit system. I mean, we have transit, but we're not talking about subway systems and the type of infrastructure that exists in bigger urban areas. Let's back up a little bit to the 30,000 foot level. You, you deal in this every day and there's so many big tectonic plates moving here. You have the war in Ukraine and what's that doing to gas prices. You have electric cars coming up. You have you know, mass transit. You have renewable energy sort of starting to rise and compete uh, for price. And then over all of that is climate change and, and what is happening with fossil fuels, you know, fueling that problem. I mean, what's your sort of assessment of, is this just a hot mess right now uh, that we're dealing with? It is a hot mess. We will make progress. We are making progress. I think one universal thing that I think is recognized in the United States and I think around the world is the need for electrification of the transit sector. That's not just cars and, and light-duty trucks that we drive. It's also buses and, and heavy and medium-duty vehicles. So electrification of the whole transportation system is seen, and I agree, is the right forward. And that's mainly because there's a couple advantages. One is you don't need to use petroleum uh, fuels. As you said, it gets you out of that oil-driven uh, um, issue of, of oil price uh, fluct variability. But also, when you, when you charge an electric vehicle and then you drive an electric vehicle, you don't have tailpipe emissions. So you get a air quality benefit at the local level to complement the greenhouse gas emission reductions from using an electric drive as opposed to using an internal combustion using gasoline or diesel fuel. How does Maine get its energy? What, what, what are the main sources? Well, uh, in the electrical uh, sector, the electricity sector, uh, it's... it's natural gas, hydro, wind, and solar. And Maine, in particular, the generation side has about 75% renewable, um, which is quite large, uh, one of the largest in the country. So Maine's ahead. We're also part of the regional electricity power grid called ISO, Independent Service Operators New England, ISO New England. And so in ISO New England, again, it's mostly natural gas with some uh, renewables for wind, uh, biomass, and solar. That's the breakdown for ISO New England and, and Maine in particular. So back to the study for a moment. Uh, can you talk about the need to coordinate the effort to reduce these gases, greenhouse gases, 
it has to be a partnership between the local, state, and and federal government. Is that a key part of this? Yeah, absolutely. We this study that we worked on uh, targeted the state departments of transportation, but the way decision making works in America is you have both federal state and local decision makers, and they all have to work together to be really effective. So we, in our report, we do highlight how state DOTs can partner with their local communities, smart growth, in, in growth. You want to densify areas of cities so that people don't have to drive. Maybe they can find a walkable store or groceries or things in the community. So it is both local growth initiatives as well as state policies for things like subsidizing electric vehicles or getting more public charging stations out there. So it is a, a true partnership between the state and local communities. And of course, we do need federal money. A lot of federal dollars do flow to the state departments of transportation for transit. And we do need federal partnerships, federal guidance uh, as well. So it's, it's a, it's a multi-level partnership. Now, we talked about Maine being a rural state, and that's certainly the case. What does that do to the challenge to use more electric cars in terms of the range, in terms of charging stations, weather, all those factors? Are, are those some of the things that make it more difficult in Maine to, to really make strides in that area? Well, charging is probably the thing that most electric vehicle owners are going to be concerned about. How do I, where am I going to charge? Most people charge at home. Um, so, in that sense, being rural isn't necessarily uh, a handicap, but and you to, but then you want to say, well, how far do I have to drive on any given trip? So to the extent that ruralness means you have to be able to drive further, it does it does pose a greater challenge for rural areas. And there's also less opportunity because we're rural to find urban areas, not exclusively, but that's often where charging public charging stations are located. So it does make it harder. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a, a something that can't be solved through conscientious, through planning. But it is. It is a challenge. How is Maine doing in terms of adopting electric cars? Who's sort of leading the way? The country that's leading the way is Norway, uh, by far. Norway has, uh, if you has somewhere in the order of eighty percent of new vehicles being sold being either battery electric. Or, um, or battery plug-in with some uh, use of gasoline. So uh, with, with, with the full battery electric somewhere in the 65% range. But that is, that, they're the, by far the world's leader. And that really has to do with a all out government policy to raise the cost of internal combustion or gasoline diesel cars through a 25% tax. Uh, and then uh, no tax and, and on the electric vehicles, as well as other perks such as um, free parking and other things. We're not there yet in terms of policy, and Norway is a much smaller country. So they're the world's leader. People do look to them, but I'm not sure that the lessons of Norway are going to apply to a large nation such as the United States. Within the United States, California is by far the leader. They have about 12% of their uh, new vehicle sales being electric right now. And that's up about 10%, up 10% in the last decade. So they've made a lot of progress and, there's, and, they, and, and I wanna acknowledge that. Maine is making a lot of progress too, but we're still in the 2% range of new vehicle sales. Uh, and 
getting up to 10% is going to be a challenge and we'll get there, but it's, it, it's a challenge. It's sort of ironic because Norway is awash with oil, right? Yes, they are awash with oil and uh, they sell it on the world market. And most of that money goes into a sovereign wealth fund. Can you just talk a little bit about the need to communicate the benefits of making this switch, I guess. What, what can be done so everybody benefits, not just the people that can afford what for electric cars is a much bigger price tag? When you think about the benefits of electrification and cleaning up our transportation, it's really important that these benefits go to everyone, everyone in society, low income, disadvantaged communities, as well as higher income people. Everybody should win on this. It's important because it's the right thing to do for everybody to get better transportation, cleaner transportation in their local communities. It's also good public policy in the sense that this is a transformation we need to make and we need everybody to benefit so that everybody's willing to pay and contribute to make this transition happen. Let's talk a little bit about the challenge of making this switch big picture. I mean, we have a, an economy that for, you know, I guess what, 100 and 150 years has been based on internal combustion engines. It's not just transportation, it's drive-ins, it's people that repair cars, it's auto parts stores. Everything is based on these gas-powered vehicles. And so changing that and going to electrification, can, can you get your arms around how big a, a tectonic plate shift that is? I mean, it just feels huge, like you're trying to turn around a tanker in a, in a swimming pool or something. I think it's important to be realistic about the challenge ahead of us. It is huge. It is. And then your tanker example is a good, I like that analogy very much. It is about turning around a tanker, which is slow to turn and it takes a long time. It does involve uh, the uh, repair stations. It does in involve everybody. At the same time, we've seen transitions. Once upon a time, we didn't all have little smart computers called cell phones in our pockets. Today we do. Uh, not universally. In fact, it, one of the problems today, of course, is that not, especially with low-income people, is they don't have necessarily have access to uh, smartphones and good uh, internet connectivity. So we must make sure that this transition includes everybody, but it is a very large uh, undertaking because it involves insurance, it involves charging, it involves the way you go about your day, because it is fundamentally changing a whole system that we have established and it works very well for us in many regards, except for, um, of course, balance of payments, who's pay, who, where are we buying this oil from, all those issues. We talked at the top about all the competing factors that are at play here, short term versus long term. You know, we have the war in Ukraine. What is that doing to energy prices right now? We have the long term needs and desires to reduce greenhouse gases and move away from internal combustion engines. Can you just talk about the, the interplay and the battle between those competing sort of dynamics, short term versus long term? It's a bit of a tug of war going on right now, isn't it? It, it is. It, it is quite a lot. Uh, it is a tug of war going on right now. You know, United States, the, the war in Ukraine is driving oil prices up and oil is a worldwide commodity. Even though the United States is a very large, one of the world's largest oil producers and refiners, and we do export ref significant amounts of refined product, because it's a worldwide commodity, high oil prices anywhere mean high oil prices in America. It's just, it's just what it is. It's a world commodity. Um, so you do have sectors of the United States economy that produce oil, and those high oil prices are very beneficial to parts of the U.S. economy. Let's not forget that. If you're, if you're in Oklahoma, 
or Texas or other oil producing states, this is a time to make some money because oil prices are high. Um, so that is, that is important, it's real, and, and you have to acknowledge that. It's important that we have what's called, uh, the language going around these days is a just transition, looking after those oil field workers and other people who stand to potentially lose or uh, if not lose their job, they, they are gonna have to find a different job. They have to find new skills because it's not the skills uh, that you need to be a electrical vehicle technician or manufacturing or all the component parts are not necessarily the same skills as taking the oil out of the ground and refining it. It's disingenuous to say to people, don't worry about your job. It's a good future, you'll be fine. I, I think we have to really pay attention to those people who, whose jobs may be at risk. It's just, it's the right thing to do to pay attention to that. So we, we need to acknowledge it, we need to work with it. I don't think we can stop just because just because some folks will uh, lose their jobs doesn't mean we should not do this, but it means we have to make sure that they are adequately uh, taken care of. You can't open a newspaper or watch a news program or open your phone without hearing about supply chain problems these days, uh, whether it's uh, chips or cream cheese or whatever. It just seems to be a big problem as we come out of this pandemic. Is that also uh, affecting the adoption or the manufacturing of electric vehicles, or is it the same for internal combustion engines and electric vehicles in terms of supply chain problems holding things up a little bit? Supply chain problems are a real issue for electric vehicle transition. Uh, and that's because electric vehicles have a lot of computer chips in them, and they have a lot of specialized parts. And those specialized parts come from all around the world. And so when you have a, a bottleneck somewhere and you need one part, that can really stop a vehicle from being uh, produced and on the road and getting to a customer. I ordered an I, uh, Volkswagen ID4. It took about eight months uh, for my vehicle to uh, be produced and shipped uh, to uh, Darlings in Bangor. I guess the other story you can't help but notice every day is the technological advances, whether it's new battery technology or other uh, technologies that, that are really moving things forward. Have you seen any new developments of uh, things that are coming down the pike that, that people should be excited about? Are, are we ready for a leap forward in the capabilities and technologies for, say, electric vehicles? Ron, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. I mean, in some senses, electric vehicles are just a perfect substitute or replacement for your current gasoline or diesel vehicle. But in some ways, they're better. They're quieter. The acceleration's great. They have all the latest safety features. So these are really nice vehicles. That's not, you know, they're just really nice vehicles. But uh, so what's on there is already incredibly advanced compared to just the vehicles just a few years ago. But if you're asking also what's coming down the pike maybe five years from now, that's, there's still some very interesting things in the works. One is battery technology continues to evolve. It's not static. And so we do expect better ranges, lower costs, to come down, to, to be coming down. And that's realistic to expect that, not pie in the sky stuff. And it's realistic because we've looked at the price of batteries and they and they and if you plot them on a graph, they show a downward, a clear downward trend with time and with production volume. So we're expecting better batteries, lower costs, better technology in the vehicle. So that's, that's all occurring. Doesn't mean that the new vehicles aren't just tremendous now. You've been studying this stuff a long time. 
Have you uh, ever seen a time that's more volatile in energy and transportation or more promising or more discouraging? I mean, wh- where where are we at in terms of how you've looked at this stuff for what, uh, a couple of decades anyway, right? Yeah, I have. And I would say, I wish, to, I wish I could say to you that this is time is now unprecedented, but it's not. We've had major oil price spikes in the past. In fact, if you look at inflate by inflation uh, corrected oil prices, this is not the highest oil prices we've seen uh, in the last couple of decades. So this is not unprecedented. I think the expectation should be that oil prices are volatile. And once you understand that that is the norm as opposed to the exception, then it in some ways makes the case for electric vehicles stronger because you don't have the same degree of price fluctuation so far in the electrical power sector as you do in the world oil markets. So as we wrap up here, we ask all of our uh, podcast guests to sort of gaze into their crystal ball, so to speak. So maybe you could give us your, your best educated guesses or guesstimates, whatever you, however you want to put it, about how Maine is situated going forward. Where, where are we at and, and what's sort of the, the realistic best case scenario of where we're headed? If, if I'm looking to my crystal ball, I would say that the answer is it depends on the actions we take today. It, it, it really depends on you, me, our families, and our, and our civic organizations and our politicians to, to, say, to say, what is it I want out of uh, my transportation, my cars? What, what, what is it I really want? And be open to change. If, if people are open to change, and this is a large change, and that's why I, I want to say it's partly an attitude of people. Uh, we can make the type of progress that we need to make, but it's not a for, it's not a foregone conclusion. If we don't make the investments in electric charging, if we don't make sure that low-income people benefit, we are not going to get there. Uh, and so that is that's also really important to remember. I will say, as an electric vehicle owner, I love my EV. I'm fortunate that I have enough income that I could afford one. And I, I did get some subsidies from Efficiency Maine and, and from the federal government, uh, and those do help. Uh, but I love my EV, and I think that people ought to just go to their dealer and say, hey, can I test drive one? Uh, can I see what this is like? How would it work for my family? So I'm, I'm optimistic, but I, I'm also realistic in the sense that it takes a willingness for people to make changes, and it takes a willingness and continuity of our public and civic institutions to help in this. Well, as someone once said, may you live in interesting times. And I think in, in your world and what you study, that is uh, certainly the case at the moment. Thanks for uh, taking some time to chat with us. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, as always, for joining us. You can find The Main Question on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Have questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.